Matthew's Gospel includes that same teaching that Jesus gives on divorce, but he gives a little bit different ending where we get a little bit more uh, insight. So I want to read this from uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, verses 11 and 12, the conversation Jesus has with his disciples after his teaching on divorce. But he said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have, been made, who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for giving us your gracious words for speaking truth to us, truth we can cling to even in times of great confusion. We thank you for the clear teaching of your word about marriage, what it means for us to be made male and female in your image, for men and women to be equal but different. Father, we thank you for your glorious design for the family. Father, we pray today that we would grow into a deeper understanding of what marriage means and that we might have wisdom to articulate the truth about marriage in our culture. We pray that you would speak to us today, that you would encourage us and strengthen us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have noticed as we're in this part of Mark's Gospel that there have not been a lot of really uplifting uh, sermon topics lately. We have uh, talked about self-denial. We have talked about hell. We have talked about church discipline. Uh, last week we looked at this passage in Mark chapter 10 and we talked about divorce. Uh, so th these are not uh, the most uplifting topics uh, in Scripture, but they're in Mark's Gospel for a reason and they're here for us to, uh, to talk about and learn more about for a reason. I do want to encourage you, if you weren't here last week, you might want to go back and listen to last week's sermon to get some more context for this week's sermon. This is not going to be a real typical sermon. I'm not going to be dealing uh, real exegetically with the text this morning. Uh, I talked about divorce last week. Uh, this time, this week, I want to use the same text to address the topic of same-sex marriage because it's such a big issue in our culture. I just found out in this past week, uh, a pastor that I've known for a long, long time who uh, seemed to have towed the line on these issues has changed his mind. His position on these things has evolved, uh, you could say, and he's moved from a traditional position to uh, a more progressive position. And we're seeing this happen all around us, and so we have to ask ourselves, is the traditional position, uh, not taught not only by Christians, but also by Jews and Muslims for that matter, is it a viable position to hold on marriage in the modern world? Uh, I also want to apologize to you parents of young kids uh, this morning. Uh, you may, I may raise some questions <laughs> with things I say this morning. Uh, questions that your kids might have afterwards. I'd encourage you to, to address those questions uh, in, in wisdom and in love. Don't just dismiss them. These are things we need to be talking about with our children because certainly the world all around us is talking about these things. Uh, so we need to be addressing these things 
uh, also. I'd also invite and encourage any of you to make this a continuing conversation. I'm not going to be able to talk about this issue from all the relevant angles uh, just in one sermon, and I don't plan to camp out on this. We'll be moving forward in Mark's Gospel after this, but I certainly would love to hear feedback, hear your thoughts on the matter, hear if you think I've said something uh, out of line or, or misspoken or misstepped along the way. I would love to hear from you and, and, and engage that uh, conversation with you. So with those things in view, let's dive into this. Uh, in this story in Mark chapter 10, also found in Matthew 19 that I read a little snippet from, in this story, Jesus is defending marriage against the Pharisees. The Pharisees had redefined marriage so that a man could more easily divorce his wife. Uh, the Pharisees bring their question to Jesus they ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Uh, Mark tells us this was a test. It was really a temptation. It was a trap. Uh, they're trying to get Herod and the crowds to turn against Jesus, and so they bring up this controversial issue of divorce. Now, if Jesus were on earth in, in, on earth in our day, uh, my guess is modern-day Pharisees would try to trap him with a different question that would get the powers that be to turn against him and get the people to turn against him. Uh, that question would be something like this. Is it lawful for two people of the same sex to marry? Uh, that question is at the center of very intense controversy right now, as you know. And what I want to do is explore how I think Jesus would answer that question. What Jesus says in response to the Pharisees' question about divorce is just as relevant to our modern question about same-sex unions. In looking at how Jesus answers this question, in one sense, I know I am preaching to the proverbial choir uh, for the most part. I suppose that most of you already have a pretty good idea of how Jesus would answer that question. But it is still worth covering this ground because even if I am preaching to the choir, the reality is it's the choir today that is under attack. And because of that, many so-called choir members, rank-and-file Christians, you could say, have gone wobbly on their convictions in this area. It's not the Christian pastors who are under attack, uh, who are bearing the brunt of the attacks on marriage in our day. It's Christian bakers and Christian photographers and Christian florists. Uh, I can tell you, I think that there will be many negative spiritual and social consequences if same-sex marriage becomes the law of the land. But one thing I think we can say we know with absolute certainty that will happen is that Christians who hold to what I would consider a biblical or we could say traditional view of marriage will be marginalized. And we will lose many of our civil liberties. Christian speech about sexuality will be regarded as hate speech. That's how it will be Branded. And Christians will find themselves, as many already are, Christians will find themselves increasingly in situations that are very difficult and where there is a great deal of pressure to compromise on these issues. Let me paint the picture for you with just a, a handful of anecdotes, things that are going, around, going on around us that have happened over the last few years. Uh, some of these you probably already know about. Uh, a photographer in New Mexico was sued after politely declining to photograph a gay wedding. Uh, and he lost, and, or actually it was a she, I believe, and had to pay a fine. And, and so the takeaway from that is that the uh, 
state of New Mexico said, it is within our jurisdiction, it is within our power to force you as a photographer to use your creative and artistic gifts to celebrate something that you find immoral, that violates your conscience. That doesn't matter. Uh, Catholic social services in Massachusetts uh, essentially went out of the adoption business because they simply refused to place children into same-sex households. And so the state said, fine, forget it, uh, we're not working with you anymore. A t-shirt company in Kentucky was found guilty of discrimination after refusing to print t-shirts for a gay pride event. Uh, two ministers in Idaho were threatened with heavy fines and jail time for declining to officiate a same-sex ceremony. Uh, a florist in Washington State, this has been in the news even in the last couple weeks, a florist in Washington State has been sued for failing to provide flowers for a gay wedding. Uh, she had actually done business with this man for years, and, and she had actually also uh, hired gay employees and, and certainly done business with other gay people. Uh, but she told him that she could not do the flowers for the wedding because of her relationship with Jesus. Well, this florist has now been sued by the state of Washington, and she stands to lose her business, her home, and her savings uh, because of this stance she's taken. Uh, a fire chief in Atlanta uh, was fired because he wrote a book in which he spoke out in favor of a traditional view of marriage. So I don't think that uh, Christians um, Christians are seeing very clearly what same-sex marriage will mean. It is a grave threat to the freedom of Christians to speak out and live out their convictions about marriage. This is really the wedge issue in our day. Uh, and we need to understand the same-sex marriage movement uh, is really not just about gaining freedom for gays to marry so they can obtain certain legal benefits. What I think a lot of these cases show you is it's really about requiring everyone to approve and even celebrate their chosen lifestyle. That's really what this comes down to. Uh, this is a huge issue here in Alabama. You, you, you've seen anything in the news over the last uh, couple of months. Uh, this has come up again and again. Let's say that you are a probate judge uh, in the state of Alabama. And let's say that in the next couple of months, the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, makes same-sex marriage the law of the land. What are you going to do? Are you going to say that this would be a case of legitimate civil disobedience and simply refuse to hand out those marriage certificates? Will you resign from your position and say, well, this is clearly no longer a position that a Christian can hold, no longer an office a Christian can hold? Or do you just go along with it? And what if somebody says, well, look, you're, trying, you're objecting to same-sex marriage, but you've been handing out divorce certificates for couples who didn't have biblical grounds for divorce. Where does that leave you? in the whole discussion. Well, let's even bring it closer to home. Uh, let's say you have a co-worker uh, or neighbor uh, who is gay and decides they want to marry and invites you to the same-sex ceremony. Do you go? Uh, there are a number of questions here to be answered. And I, I'm not going to pretend like they all have really simple answers because they certainly don't all have very simple answers. I will say this, if we're going to speak to this issue with wisdom, uh, 
and with winsomeness and with effectiveness, we need to understand not only what the Bible says about this issue, but also why it says it. And we need to give some thought to how to articulate that message in our personal relationships and also in the public square. We need to understand how to befriend people and genuinely love people who disagree with us on this issue, including gays themselves. And I say that we ought to do this. We ought to be articulating our position and we ought to be befriending people who disagree with us, including homosexuals, not just so that we can save America or something like that. That's often how I think this is couched. But we need to do these things because we are agents of Christ's kingdom. We are his missionaries in the world. It seems like the default response on the part of many Christians is simply to get angry and then to panic over all of this. And there may certainly be a place for getting angry over what's happening, being grieved over what's happening to our country's culture. But anger and panic do not constitute a fully Christian response, and they certainly don't accomplish very much. Again, we have to see ourselves as Christ's missionaries. We're not anti-gay. We're anti-sin. And we're anti-sin because we're pro-human flourishing. And because we're pro-mission. And because we're pro-Christ. And we want to see Christ's kingdom, Christ's reign manifest. Uh, that's really how we've got to look at this. So let's go back to the question we started with. What would Jesus say to us today if Jesus proposed the question, is it lawful for a man to marry another man or a woman to marry another woman? What might Jesus say? Well, I think if asked about same-sex marriage, Jesus' answer would look a lot like his answer to the Pharisees' question about divorce. From the beginning, it was not so. Jesus takes us back to Genesis, back to the creation account to show us what men, women, marriage, and sex are really all about. The norms for marriage, the norms for sexuality are found in the creation, God's created design. And so Jesus says, from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female for this reason. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. I think what Jesus is doing here is giving us the rationale for marriage. I think he's really defining marriage for us. Uh, that's really what his answer amounts to. It's a definition of marriage. He gives us the creational and covenantal essentials which I think you can boil down really to three things. Exclusivity, permanence, and complementarity. So let's look at each one of these. Each one of these is important, especially the last one, but they all deserve attention. Exclusivity. Jesus identifies marriage as a unique kind of relationship. It's different from any other kind of relationship, and it's different in its exclusiveness. We should not think of marriage as just a, a really intense form of friendship. Uh, or, or even friendship with a sexual component added in. In marriage, the two become one. Uh, there's a covenantal bond between the two that makes them one. Uh, to just become friends with someone, you don't have to go through a public ceremony where you make promises to each other. 
to dissolve a friendship. You don't have to go down to the courthouse and work through legal proceedings, and you certainly don't have to prove that there are grounds for terminating the friendship. Certainly, we, we would say that marriage should include friendship, but marriage is so much more than that. It is, as Jesus describes, using the language of Genesis, it's a man leaving his father and mother and cleaving to his wife in a unique way. Marriage forms a new family. That's what's unique about it. Marriage forms a new family. Marriage has a structure that other relationships lack. Think about having a friendship with somebody. You know, you and another person are friends. And then that circle of friends expands to include other friends. And now it's not just two of you, it's three or four of you. You know, if you read C.S. Lewis on this question, he's so good on it, he points out that as the circle of friends expands, at least to a certain point, the, 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 the more friends that come into the circle, all of those inner relationships are enhanced. They're all deepened. But it's not like that with marriage. If you try to bring another into it, say through adultery or through polygamy, you weaken the bond of marriage or even destroy the bond of marriage altogether. See, friendships are held together. How? They're held together by emotional bonds or by shared interests or by common projects that we undertake. Marriage is held together by a different kind of bond, a covenant bond. It's held together by a covenant promise that is still in force even if feelings fluctuate or interests shift. It's not just another form of friendship or a really intense kind of friendship. It's a family-forming bond. <clears throat> That's the first ingredient. The second ingredient Jesus talks about here, what makes marriage unique, is its permanence. Jesus goes back to the creation account and describes how God joins together a man and a woman as husband and wife. God is the one who forms this covenant bond between them. And Jesus makes it clear here, this is really the question at issue in the discussion with the Pharisees. He makes it clear this is to be a permanent covenant bond. Let not man separate what God has joined together. That's really what we talked about last week. We talked about Divorce last week. That was the topic at issue with the Pharisees. Jesus corrected the Pharisees' misinterpretation of the law. The Pharisees had twisted Moses' words to justify what we today would call no-fault divorce. And Jesus showed how that contradicts the divine design and command for marriage. It contradicts why God instituted marriage in the first place. Marriage is to be a lifelong Bond. All those words Jesus uses when he talks about leaving and cleaving and the one fleshness of the relationship, all of those words imply permanence. Now let me say this. While same-sex marriage gets all the attention in our day, the reality is no-fault divorce redefined marriage in our culture a generation ago. And actually in our culture, I, I would... Uh, goes so far as to say that no-fault divorce has been and will continue to be far, far, far more destructive than same-sex marriage, if nothing else, because it affects so many more people. See, what is divorce? Divorce is really, in a way, family suicide. 
Marriage was designed to be indissoluble. When we violate that principle of permanence, everyone suffers, especially children. And you know that because we've lived with this for over a generation now and we've seen it. Largely because of divorce. A teenage boy today is more likely to have a smartphone than he is to have a father living at home with him. Why do we do this to ourselves when study after study shows us that children flourish best when raised with both parents, a mother and a father? Oh, certainly God can compensate in those situations where the family breaks down for whatever reason. Uh, We don't want to, to deny that at all. God certainly can compensate. God's gracious. God's always compensating for less than perfect situations. But again and again... The proof is borne out. The traditional family structure is the best environment for children. Uh, Chuck Colson used to say, every time I step foot in a prison, I see the results of splintered families. See, with no-fault divorce really did, no-fault divorce encoded the sexual revolution into law. Really just as much as Roe versus Wade did. Uh, Roe versus Wade required a redefinition of personhood, No-fault divorce required a redefinition of the marriage covenant. So in all our talk about same-sex marriage, redefining the institution of marriage, that's true. But let's also be honest, no-fault divorce redefined marriage a generation ago. In fact, the first state to adopt no-fault divorce was California in 1969 when conservative hero Governor Ronald Reagan signed it into law. Uh, So this was not just a liberal thing. Conservatives totally implicit in it, complicit in it as well. And I think as that law spread across the rest of the country, the seeds of marriage's demise in our culture were planted there. And you know what? There were no Christian protests. No Christian backlash against changing divorce laws. Christians simply stood by watched it happen, and did nothing. And I would say it was our failure a generation ago on this divorce issue that opened the door to what we are now facing. Well, then the third ingredient of marriage that Jesus gives us is complementarity. And this is obviously the one that's most important uh, when it comes to dealing with homosexuality. As Jesus defines marriage here, it is between a man and a woman. A man and a woman who equally image God, but who do so in different and complementary ways. Men and women are incomplete without one another. That's implied in the creation account. He needs a helper. She needs a head. Together they come together and form a whole. The man and the woman fulfill one another and complete one another and complement one another in marriage. The sexual complementary complementarity of marriage is hardwired into the institution. It's built into the very fabric of what marriage is. Men and women are equal, but men and women are different. God made man, male and female. There's really no such thing as an androgynous human. You're either male or female. And as Jesus makes it clear here, 
Marriage is the joining together of male and female, the joining together of a man and a woman. You cannot erase maleness and femaleness and still have marriage. Marriage, by definition, is the union of male and female, and it's a unique union. Now, there are a lot of reasons why God designed marriage this way, as the union of male and female, the union of man and woman. For one thing, marriage has to do with children. Marriage is with a view to procreation. Marriage has as one of its goals, ordinarily, providing a secure and stable context for the raising of children. But if marriage has a view to children, and that's in the Genesis account too, where God tells the first couple to be fruitful and multiply, obviously you only get children with a male-female pair. Uh, You could say each finds something it's lacking in the other. The man is lacking something he finds in the woman. The woman is lacking something she finds in the man. If you think about it, most every system that your body has is complete on its own. Most everything that the body does, one body can do on its own. A man can digest food on his own. You don't need another person to help you with digestion. A person can see using no one's eyes but his own. You don't have to have another person to somehow complete uh, the seeing function of the body. Uh, A man can walk using his own two legs. You don't have to have two bodies working together in order to walk. That's how all of our systems are. All the vital functions of the body work that way except for one, and that's procreation. The nervous system, the respiratory system, the circulatory system, they're all complete in each body, but not the reproductive system. The only way for the human reproductive system to work is for a man and a woman to come together as one flesh. Unions that in the very nature of the case could never produce offspring because they're not male-female unions cannot in the nature of the case be marriages. They're simply out of sync with God's design for marriage. They don't fit this creational criteria for marriage. Or you could put it this way. God created us male and female in order to create this other thing called marriage. God made us male and female so that there might be this thing called marriage. God divided the human race into men and women so that he could reunite them in the covenant of marriage. If we weren't made male and female, we wouldn't have marriage at all. Because marriage is based on gender. It's based on those gender distinctions. And those gender distinctions find their rationale in the covenant of marriage. Saints cannot marry. Only compliments can marry. Marriage is what it is because God made us the way he made us. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. Men and, wisdom, men and women, husbands and wives, find their distinctive roles to play in marriage. And, and let me just help you see how important this complementarity is within marriage. Not only do we see it in the creation account, this is how God made us, male and female, that we might be joined together in marriage, but it's also precisely where Satan attacked Adam and Eve in the garden. His test His temptation in the garden was a gender-specific test. When he comes to them in the garden to attack them and tempt them and draw them away from God, it's a gender-specific test. Would the woman listen to her husband? Would the husband protect his wife? Sadly, we know how those questions 
were answered in the garden. Satan won that battle. And because he won that battle, he created all kinds of confusion, all kinds of confusion between men and women, all kinds of confusion about what it means to be a man or be a woman. Confusion and chaos we've been living with ever since. Now, there are other reasons for male-female complementary, other reasons why God has built male-female complementary complementarity into marriage. There are what you could call natural reasons for it, like what I've just given to you. But there are also reasons that you could say go beyond nature. Uh, God has built into marriage gospel symbolism. Uh, Our bodies are not just biological, they are theological. And in marriage, Paul shows us in Ephesians 5 what this means. The husband represents Christ. The wife represents the church. Christ is masculine in relation to his bride. His bride is feminine in relation to him. And so what does that mean for the definition of marriage? Well, you can't have two Christs and no bride and still have a marriage. Nor can you have two brides and no Christ at all and still have a marriage. Again, marriage requires this male-female complementarity because marriage was created for the sake of the gospel to signify and reveal God's redemptive plan in the Christ-church relationship. See, our marriages are just shadows of that ultimate marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. And quite frankly, this is also why you can't have one Christ and many brides, as in polygamy, or Christ regularly dumping his bride to go find another one, as in serial divorce. Again, all of those ways of living, all of those ways of doing marriage are out of sync with God's design for our humanity. There is a script for marriage that God himself has written, a gospel script. There is a symbolic dimension to what marriage is. And so the lifelong love of a man and his wife is intended to point to the eternity-long love of Christ and his church. The complementarity of marriage tells a story. The story it tells is the story of the gospel. Which means marriage really gets right at the meaning of life, the meaning of history, the meaning of the whole cosmos. That's why the whole biblical story is framed by two marriages. The Bible begins with a wedding and it ends with a wedding. You've got Adam and Eve in the opening chapters of Genesis. You've got Jesus and the church in Revelation. Now, given these current controversies swirling around us, we need to understand all of this. We need to understand the complementarity of marriage comes to its fullest expression in the one fleshness of a husband and wife. In other words, it's specifically a sexual complementarity. Again, that's what makes marriage marriage. And let me go one step further here. In Ephesians 5, Paul links marriage with the gospel and shows that marriage is designed to symbolize the gospel. It's the best living picture we have of the gospel in the world. But in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul does something else. He shows us how the marital relationship is really a symbol of the Trinity. It's really a symbol of the father-son relationship. 
The oneness of the father and son is pictured in the oneness of a man with his wife. As father and son indwell one another, to use John's language, so a man and his wife indwell one another. The father and son are distinct persons sharing a common life. The reason sex is so thrilling is because it's as close as you can get in this world to the ecstatic oneness that father and son have. The I becomes a we without ceasing to be an I. And that's because in God, the I and the we are brought together. The Father and the Son are one, and yet each has its own individuality, its own, his own personhood. So in marriage, reflecting that, you have oneness and we-ness brought together. The I and the we are brought together. The two become one. The I becomes a we without ceasing to be an I. In marriage, you become one with your spouse without ceasing to be yourself. And so you have in marriage a creaturely image of the Trinity. Again, of this mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son. The meaning of marriage as the union of man and woman is inscribed in the very creation. It is written into our bodies and our souls. It is life-giving, life-sustaining. It is symbolic of the gospel. It is revelatory of the Trinity. And if you simply think you can do away with all of that, if you simply think you can do away with the sexual complementarity of marriage, the reality is whatever you have, it's not marriage any longer. Marriage is not malleable. It's not plastic. It has a design. It has a set of core features. If I have a triangle with three sides and I take one of the sides away, I don't have a triangle any longer. I don't have a triangle anymore. You cannot have a triangle without three sides. You cannot have a marriage without these ingredients. If you take away what is essential to marriage, including its male-female complementarity, you no longer have marriage. Doing this a little bit differently, G.K. Chesterton put it this way. He said, the triangle of truisms of father, mother, and child cannot be destroyed. It can only destroy those civilizations that disregard it. But I would say that's exactly what we've done. The reason marriage is in shambles today is because we have undermined all of its core features. Its exclusivity is undercut by widespread fornication and cohabitation and the disconnection of sex from procreation. Its permanence is undercut by our no-fault divorce laws. Its complementarity is now being undermined by same-sex unions. We have separated what God joined together. We have severed sex, both in the sense of gender and in the sense of the act itself, from the covenant of marriage, and the results are disastrous. Now, Jesus does give a valid alternative to male-female marriage for life. He does describe a valid, legitimate alternative. That's why we read the little snippet out of Matthew chapter 19. That valid alternative to the male-female union in marriage, that valid alternative is a life of celibacy, a life of singleness, what Jesus calls being made a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven. Don't be put off by that term eunuch. Uh, That's actually a reference to Old Testament prophecies that talked about how when the kingdom comes, 
the eunuchs will be included and will rejoice in that. But the point is, the one alternative Jesus gives us to a male-female marriage is a chaste, single life. That's what's going on in Matthew 19, verses 11 and 12. It's the same thing going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul sets out the same dynamic and the same set of options. Now, what I've sketched for you is how I think Jesus would respond to modern-day Pharisees wanting to redefine a marriage. Redefine marriage to include same-sex unions. And we've seen that Jesus would not allow for that. Jesus would say, from the beginning, it was not so. And Jesus would give these reasons coming out of the Genesis account. Certainly much more could be said about that. These themes are developed all over the place in Scripture. But you might be wondering, well, how would a proponent of same-sex marriage respond to this? Uh, there are a lot of possible responses, a lot of different lines of argument that could be made. I just want to deal with one because it's so common. I hear it so much in the academic world, but also especially in pop culture. Someone might say, well, an appeal to creation or an appeal to nature actually justifies same-sex marriage because some people are born that way. They're gay by nature. It's just who they are. What might a response to that look like? Well, in one sense, it makes no difference to the Christian position if homosexual desires arise from genetics. Uh, we are fallen. We're fallen in every part of our being. Our minds, our bodies, our souls, our sexual desires, our DNA, even, you could say, has been impacted by the curse of sin. The doctrine of original sin teaches that corruption is passed on from one generation to the next. And that certainly includes, again, corrupted sexual desires. So even if a genetic cause for homosexuality was identified, it really wouldn't change anything. We would just say, yes, that's part of the fallenness of the world. None of our desires line up with God's creational intent. All of our desires are disordered in one way or another. But we would also have to say this. Wherever desires come from, desire is one thing. Acting on it is something else. Choosing to act on unlawful desires or disordered desires is always sin, no matter what we say about the source of those desires. But I think we should also not hesitate to point out that there's really no scientific basis for the claim that people are born that way. Uh, how would a gay gene be passed on from one generation to the next? Uh, that's a tough question to answer. Uh, what about studies of identical twins who don't turn out the same way as we would expect if it was indeed genetic? What about countless people who have had their sexual desires changed over the course of their lifetime, in many cases had their sexual desires transformed and quote-unquote normalized by the gospel and coming to trust in Christ? But there's also a contradiction to the way this kind of argument is often made. We're told that homosexuals are born that way, and that's why we're even told it would be unnatural and wrong to try to alter their desires, whether through religious conversion or through therapy of some sort. They're born that way. It's who they are by nature. But then the same movement is telling us that transgenders were born the wrong way. And so they ought to be able to chemically and surgically alter their bodies. Well, which is it? Does nature trump 
choice or does choice trump nature? Why is nature supposedly fixed in the one case and totally plastic and moldable in the other case? And further, if there is a genetic component for homosexuality and that justifies it, couldn't this be used to justify virtually any kind of sinful activity? Why couldn't the same logic of its genetic origin justifying the course of action, why couldn't that be used to justify pedophilia or adultery or racism or most anything else you want to justify? Well, certainly more could be said about that. Uh, but what you need to see is that marriage is God's institution. It is God's ordinance. It is not a human construct. Its basic ingredients, its essential core components are fixed in the creation. Marriage is not like baseball. Baseball is a human construct. It's a human invention. We, we created baseball, and so we're in charge of it, and we can change the rules, and it would still be baseball. So if you want to add a designated hitter, I don't know why you would, but if you wanted to add a designated hitter to the game, you could do that and still have baseball. If you want to add interleague play, again, I don't know why you'd want to do that, but if you want to add interleague play, you can do that and you still have baseball. We invented baseball. We can reshape it however we want. Not so with marriage. It wasn't created by human beings on their own. It certainly wasn't created by the state. And so we don't have the authority. We don't have the power to redefine it or to alter it or to reconfigure it any way we like. Now with all that being said, what does it mean for us? I think we have many reasons for defending marriage in the public square. Let me just say this. The best defense of marriage we could ever give is our own marriages lived out with a kind of Christ-like love and respect that Paul calls us to in Ephesians chapter 5. The best defense of marriage will always be marriage itself. Faithful, fruitful, loving, respectful Christian marriages. I think we have a lot of reasons for wanting to defend marriage in the public square. Certainly healthy marriages serve the common good. Uh, the closer a society conforms marriage to God's design, the more that society will flourish, especially that society's children. Uh, we also want to defend marriage publicly because marriage is a public representation of the gospel. And to tamper with marriage is really to tamper with the gospel itself. And so we could put it this way, just as Jesus says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. What God has defined, let not man redefine. We have to say firmly and unequivocally, homosexual practice is a rejection of God's creative design. But we also need to understand this. Let's just say we lose this battle in our culture. Not many people say we've already lost it. Let's just suppose that same-sex marriage becomes the law of the land, even here in Alabama, uh, within the next few months, as seems likely. Then what? What next? Uh, certainly we could talk about political responses, and that will be the response of a lot of Christians, I guarantee you. Uh, their first response will be political. 
and, and, and I would say a political response is not totally out of place. If the federal government attempts to force a redefinition of marriage on us, if it forces us to acknowledge as marriage that which is not marriage, then I would say we've got to obey God rather than men and let the consequences be what they may. I would also call upon our lesser magistrates, our state magistrates, to resist that imposition from the federal government. But I'm really not that concerned with the political responses. I'm most concerned with the ecclesial response, the church's response. I think a change in the law will create all kinds of hardships for faithful Christians, all kinds of what you could call soft persecution. But let me tell you something. When that hardship comes, when the difficulties arise, do not grumble and complain. Bear up under those hardships with joy. We should pray for those who persecute us. Don't let yourself be intimidated by those who talk about being on the wrong side of history, concern yourself only with being on the right side of God. You know, John Knox said, God with one man is a majority. That's always true. Don't be intimidated and don't grumble and complain. Be joyful no matter what hardships come. Be joyful in the midst of persecution. Seek to love everyone around you. Love sinners heterosexual sinners, homosexual sinners, treat everybody with respect and dignity, knowing that, that every person you meet is a divine image bearer. Have compassion, especially towards people who are confused about their sexuality. There's a really good chance they are a victim, as much as a victimizer, maybe even more so. And so show them compassion. Remember that while sexuality lived out according to God's design brings us the greatest happiness possible, when messed up, our sexuality becomes the greatest source of human unhappiness and misery. And so show compassion for people in these situations. We need to identify areas of sin and shortcoming within our own communities. As the church sometimes had a double standard, treating heterosexual sins really gently while being really harsh towards homosexual sins. I don't think there's any question there's been a double standard there. The church needs to repent of how she has treated homosexual neighbors. I mean, quite honestly, we are a lot better at hating the sin than loving the sinner. That's just not right. We need to learn how to preach the gospel as good news to gays. What most gays walk away from from an encounter with a Christian is that if I just became straight, I'd be saved. And that is not the message of the gospel. Nobody gets saved by becoming straight or becoming heterosexual. Salvation for everybody and anybody is found only in the blood of Christ. That's the message that needs to be clear. Forgiveness is found at the cross for everybody. We need to be welcoming while acknowledging we can't be affirming. And yes, we will be accused of hate speech, and so we have to go the extra mile to prove we really do love those with whom we disagree. So much so that when the charges of hate speech come, they are laughable because our love has been proved by our actions. 
But we have to admit that even as heterosexuals, we too are sexual sinners. Our sin is just as much an abomination before God. And so there should be humility and not a trace of self-righteousness in how we deal with these issues. We need to speak the truth in love. And we need to learn to say simultaneously to practicing homosexuals, what you're doing is wrong, but we love you. Not only that, what you're doing is wrong, but God loves you. Because the truth is, that's what God says to us. God says to each of us, you have sinned, and God also says, you are loved. And that is the message we need to proclaim. Only the gospel only the gospel can undo the sexual revolution. Only the gospel can undo its damage. Only the gospel can rebuild a healthy and flourishing culture of marriage. Our public voice on this issue might not be heard. It might be silenced. And yes, in part, that might be because of the church's sins against the world. But it's also going to be because of the world's sins against the church. The world does not want to hear what we have to say right now. We have to keep speaking the truth in love anyway. Flannery O'Connor said, the truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it. Speak the truth in love. And know that when you suffer, and I do think the suffering will come. I think we're going to see Christians who lose their jobs perhaps. We might see churches come under legal attacks. Certainly we'll be ostracized and marginalized by society at large for the stance that we take, know that as we suffer, we are suffering with Christ. Christ is in us and suffering with us. And know that as we suffer, yes, the church might have to undergo a kind of death. But that's no reason to despair or to fear or to give up because our God knows his way out of the grave. Let's pray together. Father, we know that your truth will always prevail in the end. We ask that you would make us faithful and patient servants in your kingdom. We pray that you would give us sexual self-discipline, sexual self-control, whatever our situation is in life. We pray for healthy marriages in this church and in every church, marriages that can raise faithful, flourishing children. We pray that the way we live as men and women would reflect your creative wisdom and your redemptive grace. We pray that you would help us to encourage those who are struggling with disordered sexual desires of whatever kind, that we might help them, by your grace, attain victory in those battles. Most of all, Father, we thank you for your forgiving mercy shown to us in Christ Jesus, displayed at his cross. For that's our hope. Amen.